0: Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I'm joined by sommelier Taylor Wolf, who is the head sommelier over at the Refectory in Columbus, Ohio here. If you've never been there, you'll find Taylor out on the floor. If uh, you're a regular, uh, then I'm sure you've had numerous conversations with him. Chris Dillman is also back over at the Refectory too, so it's pretty awesome to see kind of two sommeliers over there. Taylor, you know, he's somebody I wanted to have on the podcast just to uh, kind of learn about him through the grapevine, uh, so to speak. No pun intended there. Just wanted to talk wine with him. And it's always cool to see somebody start out their career in a different direction than they originally planned, which so many people that have come on this podcast do. And now he's in the world of wine and gaining all this knowledge. And, and you know, he's passed uh, the intro exam, but he's gained so much more knowledge past anything that you would ever fine in an exam. And it's kind of another case in point where doing all the exams for wine, there is some benefits and, and it can be beneficial, but it doesn't mean that you can't be knowledgeable just because you haven't taken the advanced or the master or W set4 or anything like that too. So uh, we talk about his career, how he kind of got into wine, how he wound up in Columbus, where everything was headed before getting into wine, and how he got the job at the refectory when Chris was leaving to go over to FLX Hospitality out in uh, Geneva, and just kind of wine in general. So it's a really cool conversation. If you've never been to the refectory or haven't been there in a while, um, you'll find Taylor out on the floor doing pairings and has access to all this cool stuff. Um, So he's got a whole bunch of different stuff for people to try that stuff they haven't experienced before, which is really awesome to see. They also have the wine shop up front, so you can stop in and and grab a bottle. You can follow him on Instagram at t.o.wolf, L-W-O-L-F. Also at Refractory Wine and at Refractory Dining. You can follow us on Instagram too as well, at Spoon Mob. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook we do have a TikTok account, too. We don't really do much with that. We actually did something for the first time. So you can follow us there, too. It's probably mostly going to be podcast announcements, though. Check out the website, spoonmob.com. Make sure to follow the, or subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. New episodes come out on Thursdays. We're doing some kind of mini update episodes with some of the guests that have been on before. Those are coming out on Monday and Tuesdays right now. And then also... We'll have some additional things probably in the future, but make sure to subscribe or follow whatever platform uh, the YouTube episodes is come out a week behind. So it'll hit all the platforms first and then a week later you can uh, get it through YouTube without further delay. Here's my conversation with Somalier Taylor Wolf of the Refectory in Columbus, Ohio. Cool. Thanks again for coming on the podcast, uh, being flexible. I love talking to Somalia's you're over at the Refectory now, which is you know, one of our probably, I'd say two fine dining restaurants, I guess, you know, in Columbus. I mean, there's some other stuff that fits into the elevated category, but I think when people think fine dining, it's really Veritas and the refractory before it was M, but that's that's closed and gone now. But but I want to kind of get to how you wound up there and, and everything, but I mean, we'll start at the, the beginning of your career, like I do with everyone, you know, how did you first kind of get started in restaurants and wine? I mean, originally, I think you're from Sandusky, Ohio, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I was born and raised in Ohio. I always thought I was going to move out of state to go to college, but went and found OSU and did a tour of the campus and the campus kind of got me. So yeah, I moved to Columbus. You know, college is expensive. So pretty much had to work some jobs on the side. And I actually ended up liking working more than studying. So worked usually one to two jobs during college and ended up Eventually in hospitality, wanted you know working from like the Fawcett Event Center to Brookside Country Club, um, and then eventually started getting into restaurants. And then that was kind of like a slippery slope. I think especially when I figured out when I really wanted wine was I was looking for a new career venture because I was always wanting to be a marina manager. Um, that's what my dad was. I wanted to go and like run a super. Yacht facility in like West Palm Beach or something super awesome like that. But then I started dating my wife and she was like, We're not moving to Florida. We're not going anywhere down there. I was just like, Okay. So kind of have to maybe figure something else out. My first like pretty good job was working at um, Mitchell Steakhouse up in Polaris. And like, those are some pretty good check numbers. And the tips are great. You know, I was making like 20, 150 a day. That was awesome. I'd say kind of really when the wine bug hit me and like, I knew this was going to be the careers. Like I, we did Saturday, I had a gentleman ordered uh 2001 Mouton Rothschild, And I had to ask him like four times what bottle he wanted. Cause I couldn't understand French. I didn't even know that was a bottle we had on our list. And I like went and put in the computer and it was like $700. I was like freaking out. And so opening it up on a Saturday, broke the cork, had the manager come over. He had the filter it. But then the guy let me had it and uh, like blew me away. I never had anything in my life that was like that. And I took the bottle home that night and like took a picture of it on the vino. and was like, Oh my God, this is so cool. This is such a high rating. And just like really started to get into wine. I was like, okay, this could maybe be the next venture for me. And, you know, I was at this point was like towards the end of my college career, I was going to have to be in college a little longer than I wanted to. And that was just like, all my friends are graduating and all my friends were you know, getting these cool jobs. And I was still just like serving. I was just like, I kind of feel bad. So I was like, you know what, maybe I'll, I'll just take it upon myself and get my, uh, you know, go through the quarter of master sommeliers and do a couple levels there and get a certification. So I'm just not a server. I'm, you know, I, I'm a dignified server or something like that. I can wear my little lapel pin. And so that's when I did the certified on my own. And that was really kind of the start of it. And uh, just got lucky with some jobs. And you know, I think biggest jump was when I got um, a position at Hyde Park Steakhouse downtown. And that was awesome. That definitely helped pay off some of the college bills and allowed me to taste some big Cabernets, um, which is really fun.
0: So when you're going to Ohio State, like you said, you kind of thought you're potentially going to be like a, a marina manager or something to do with boats, yachts, whatnot. You got a degree in agribusiness, right? What is agribusiness? Is that aspects of farming? Yes. And it was pretty much for anyone that
1: couldn't get into Fisher because their GPA wasn't good enough. It was like, oh, wait, you can go take a business program in our agriculture school. And I was like, oh, okay, wait, that's great. I don't have to hit like a minimum of 3.0, 3.5. And that was just kind of the route that I took. I was always interested in in sustainability and some other things like that. But just, yeah, studying in college really weren't my forte for me.
0: When you wind up at Mitchell's Is that just because of close proximity to campus and where you're living, or did you purposely want to work there? Oh, gosh, no.
1: It was interesting how I got into Mitchell's. I somehow got a job at Mitchell's Fish Market up in Crossroads, which it's no longer there. It was like where 315 and 270 are. Yeah, there used to be like a Hyde Park up there, and that's gone. I think that whole area, like just completely just hotels and apartments got put up there. That was actually my first ever restaurant job was working at um, the Mitchell's Fish Market up there. And even though it's Mitchell's, it was all owned by Landry's. It was no longer affiliated with Cameron Mitchell's. And that was fun when you had people coming with $300 of Cameron Mitchell gift cards and (laughs) they expected to pay a whole meal of that. And we're like, well, no, we just have the name. We're actually not done. That was, was always so fun to deal with. But I went to work on January 1st and I got there at like three and the building looked definitely different. There were like the signs were down. I was just like, whoa, what's going on here? And I go to the door and there's just like on the other side of like the dim door, there's like a um, piece of paper that's like put up there. It's just like, oh, we are actually closed this location due to leasing issues. So it's just like, oh, so I don't have a job. <laughs> Great. And they're like, you just call our office and we can see where we can put you. And so I think I was one of the first people to find out. And I real quick drove over to Mitchell Steakhouse, which was in Polaris. Cause like, I was like, this is, I know this is part of the the company. And I was one of the two employees that that steakhouse was able to get. So it was kind of lucky that I got into there. Um, and then I was only there for about seven months until I was finally able to move to Hyde Park, which was great because that was much closer because Polaris was a far drive.
0: So with moving over to Hyde Park, I mean, they still are kind of one of our premier steakhouses they had a maybe one or two more locations like i mentioned and that close but i think they still have four or five scattered around columbus i think with kind of that switch was that purposeful like you wanted to work over at hyde park or was that just kind of another like i gotta find something closer that's not polaris like where can i go
1: i was at the time man i was a. Uh... I just wanted money. And I saw that steaks at Mitchell's, you know, I was like, wow, people are buying wine. They're buying steaks. Like these are high check averages. And then I looked at um, Hyde Park downtown. I was like, whoa, like these wines are ridiculous. Like they have like $140 steak on here on this menu. That was the biggest driving factor because there was no Jeff Ruby's. There was no uh, Ruth Chris at that time. I think Jeff Ruby's opened up like two years after I started at Hyde Park. But it was pretty much, you know, I just wanted a really cool place to work and just lucky enough, they called me back and their wine program was pretty good. I mean, it, the wine list is pretty substantial. Now I'm not the biggest fan of it because it's like all Napa Cab. It's all Napa Shard and all that stuff, which is great. You know, that's, that's the American Steakhouse wine list for you. And so that was just a new fun opportunity for me and to really kind of uh, get the final um, edge of my college bills paid off for, um, which was great.
0: Is the wine list so cab heavy at those restaurants just because of their buying power, just in general, probably their clientele, like that's what they want kind of thing? A hundred percent.
1: I think, you know, it was easiest to continue this. those stock, those products, um, stuff that comes, you know, just from California, then first France or Spain. Um, I, you know, the beverage director, Brandon Ford, who's a great guy who's, you know, it's a corporate director. So, you know, they don't really do any buying in the restaurant themselves you know, it's much easier to maintain just that kind of list. Um, I mean, I think when I was there, you know, I could probably say we only sold, you know, maybe a couple dozen French wines, like there was like four burgundies on there, maybe five, six Bordeaux's and yeah, your your champagnes and stuff, but nobody ventured there at all. They didn't want the obscure, you know, wines of Jura, or there was no Rieslings other than our um, little St. M, you know, for like, $32 or $40 a bottle that we would sell. So it's just pretty standardized, to keep it easy um, amongst the whole corporate structure, from what I would say.
0: You're at Hyde Park 2018. You wind up taking the intro SMLA exam. Is that right?
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's the right around that time. I know this is the last year that I can take the certified. Cause technically I'm not a SOM. You know, I'm a rebellious guy that's calling myself a smalllier, but uh
0: I would disagree with that. If you pass the intro, you're a sommelier because there's somebody I had on this podcast and all they ever passed was the intro. There was no certified when they're going through. It, so it was like intro advanced and then master. And they only ever passed the intro, but they also won a grand award for their wine cellar. So like they're a sommelier, you know?
1: Yeah, no, that's like what I'll say. I'll tell anyone, it's just like, okay, come at me now when you see the wine program I'm running and the wines that we do is like, and say I'm not a somm, like, I really don't care about the credentials anymore because like, It was just for me to prove to myself, my friends, my family that, you know, I'm not just doing this, you know, to skate by like this is kind of a passion and I want to be good at it.
0: From my understanding, the certifications and stuff now are depends on what you want to do. And it seems like a lot of people kind of wind up doing the first two levels if they're with the court. Maybe they do the advanced, but like if you're not gonna work in restaurants full time, like the advanced and the master almost don't make sense for a lot of those people, it seems like if they wind up doing like their own retail thing. But yeah, if you pass the intro, you're still a Psalm.
1: I agree. Like once I take the certified, like I'm pretty much done, I feel like. At least when I'm still working in a restaurant. Um when I do a retail shop and like I have my evenings free, you know, I can hang out with my family, and my wife, then um I might, you know, be willing to go head further in the court just when I have more time. Cause like already my time's so little at home, just working all these nights all the time. So maybe in the future, but I mean, I just want to get the certified and then I'm done with it for a while.
0: I think too, like a lot of people have said kind of the knowledge that you can gain through partnerships or doing group tastings and stuff like that. Like the people that you meet, the knowledge that you can get from, from those people is more beneficial than any test that you're going to take
1: hundred percent. Like I remember when I was really starting to gear for the certified and then like I stopped, I think just cause like I was working two jobs at the time. I, was, I had my day job as well. I went to a couple meetings of, um, I think it was Kendi Warden's and Amanda Moss's uh, wine group. And it was like at Martini. And I lived on the same block as Martini. And so I went there and like, I remember like, you know, the first time I went to that, uh, the tasting group was awesome. Like I was so overwhelmed because like everyone knew so much more at me at the time. I was just like, Jesus this is like some star power in it. Cause like Gregory Stokes was there, Tyler Bruner, Kendi, Amanda. And it's just like, now all the people that were there are like, you know, I feel like the head figures of our wine industry right now in Columbus. And so it's definitely those like tasting groups that like, you know, those kind of form that network and that connection and the community uh, of wine in the area.
0: So when you decide to take the intro did you do any research beforehand? Did you know kind of what you were getting into? Or was it just like, I'm going to sign up, see what happens? I feel like I did
1: research after I bought it. I was like super overwhelmed. Like, I know a lot of people say they didn't study. I studied a lot, at least for like two weeks right before it, because I'm a huge procrastinator. So it was just like, yeah, I signed up like four months ago, which was just like two weeks before. Oh, crap. Okay, I need to start going. Because like the thing that the court... Makes clear is they're not going to make it clear what you're going to get tested on. I feel like there's just such a huge, overwhelming world of wine, and there's just so many different aspects to it. Uh, it's so hard to be limiting. You know, I'm used to the the classes where you get, you know, your syllabus. This is it, everything on here. Um, instead of like, you know, potentially some of this stuff is going to make it on here, and a little bit of this and that. I was trying to be over prepared. You know, it's that Boy Scout in me. You know, always be prepared. <laughs>
0: When you wind up taking the exam, what part was like the most difficult or challenging?
1: Not in the exam. No, for me, it was just like networking and just being around all these other what I was thinking at the time were like extremely elevated professionals in the wine industry. Cause I went down to Miami. So everyone's in these, like, I mean, for me, it looked like Gucci suits and just like everyone was like, wow. And uh, I was just overwhelmed by everybody and like people that were three times my age. And it was just overwhelming in that fact. The test itself was, I mean, honestly, really easy. I'm
0: upset that I studied so much for it. And it's like 70 questions, right? 70, 75, something like
1: that. Yeah think so. It's been a while, but yeah, it was multiple choice. and like, it was a pretty easy multiple choice. Like it was pretty obvious what some of the answers were. Like there were some of the specific laws where it's like, you know, if it's a a Napa or it comes from California and it says, you know, Cabernet, is it 85, 80, 75, or 90% that has to be Cabernet. So like, those are the ones that would like trick you up the most, but everything else is relatively quite
0: easy and straightforward. So like you mentioned, you plan on taking the certified and based on the group that you're in now and, and study groups and everything, do you think you'll have to do more studying than you did for the intro? Do you think it'll be, you know, a little bit harder or based on what you've kind of learned?
1: I think that actually be quite, I hate using the word easy, but like, I think it'll be straightforward more because like now I, I have such great foundation of everything. Now it's going to be more into the specifics of, you know, just the wine regions and wine laws, and then just blind tasting. You know, I'm definitely not worried about service. Um, so working at the refectory, uh, the theory, you know, I think will come. Just put down a couple books, and um, but the blind tasting will be the one because you know, especially now with global warming, wines are changing left and right you know, one of my uh, reps that I really like talking to, and he comes in a lot and he's going to be taking the um, certified, I think in November. And I was doing like kind of a little blind tasting when him and his wife came in for dinner the other day. And we just started talking about like uh, Sancerre wines and like now how they're just like the profile of the wines have changed so much. And now you get like all this grapefruit and more citrus coming out of them because it's hotter um, than it ever was. And so it's just like the total wines are just changing everywhere. So it's just, it is making it much more difficult. I feel like with that aspect of the blind tasting, but I think the court probably, at least for the certified gives you a lot of leeway on that. You just kind of have to prove yourself like that math question. Your math teacher never wanted the answer. They wanted to see how you got to the answer. So if you know, if you come up with enough of that foundation and you know, two plus two, hope that they would give it to you.
0: Why did you decide to start the examination process with the court versus Society of Wine or WSET?
1: All those other ones actually just seemed a little more confusing for me because like, I I wasn't working in retail. I was working strictly in-house dining. I always kind of wanted to work in a restaurant. Actually, right before COVID, uh, my wife and I, uh, we did a a whole one-week trip where we went to New York. And um, we walked like all the boroughs. We were going to move to New York right before COVID happened. And like, we wanted to work in Manhattan. Her company was going to let her start up a small office there and like, you know, continue her job. And I wanted to work at like a Michelin star restaurant or, you know, work at a, you be an importer, um, something crazy like that. And, you know, just get that overwhelming experience for working maybe like a master som. And so the court always just kind of, Appeal to me more in all of those aspects at that time. Yeah.
0: Based on kind of where you're at now, do you think you'll revisit either of those organizations for what you plan on doing in the future? Or is that just something like it's certified and then after that I'll figure it out if I want to keep going or whatever?
1: Probably not, unless it's something that I start seeing to be a huge requirement for maybe jobs in the future. You know, if I maybe want to be like a corporate beverage director or something like that, which is not necessarily eyeing up, if that's a requirement, sure, I'll go through those things. Um, but for me right now, it just seems tedious. Um, you know, I have all the wine and the knowledge at my
0: fingertips. And now I just need to be able to use it. Month or two after you pass the intro song, you wind up kind of starting at the Columbus Club, right? So you're kind of doing two jobs basically at the same time, picking up shifts there. How did that opportunity come about? What made you want to work there? God bless the Columbus club.
1: That was my saving grace. Um, I think it was just like an ad on indeed. They were just looking for like lunch servers. We lived in the battleship building, which was downtown, um, just like across from the North market. It's like this ironclad building. We got like the best apartment deal you've ever seen in your life. Like we got a two floor studio for like a grand with three parking spots and it was awesome. And so I got this job to work just lunch shifts at the Columbus club and like they paid really good. It was hourly wages so it was no tips. So it was just like flat fee, which is great for lunch shifts. And it was always four, four and a half hours. You get a free lunch and like a free custom lunch. Like I was eating like triple stacker BLTs, Dover Sole sometimes for lunch, or like a fresh Cobb salad. Like the, I had the best Cobb salads I've ever had in my life there. Like 401k, health insurance and all of this stuff. Just like it was awesome. And so it was a really good, like part-time job um, that just like gave me pretty much paid for rent plus some, Um, and I'd only work four
0: days a week there, maybe 15, 20 hours. They are a a membership club, my understanding, right? So did they have a more elaborate wine list or cellar or anything, or was it still kind of along the lines of your steakhouse wines that they had?
1: Yeah, their list was pretty simple. It was built for the members. Nothing crazy on there at all. It was a good list. It was what they needed. The uh, two gentlemen that ran the, the program you know, they didn't want change, and I don't think the members did either. And so it was like you would see a lot of kind of the Napa cabs were a big part. Napa shards, they had a little dinky French section. I think it was probably 120, 150 bottles on the entire thing. But it was just enough to sustain what they needed and nothing over extravagant. That's what the club was. It was just, you know, a good second home for places for people to go and just have a dinner away from everyone else. Eventually, you become the wine manager there. Yeah. The plan was I actually, during COVID, there was a shutdown, the quarantine seems like a lifetime ago. And so I was one of the lucky few servers that was able to get my job back at Hyde Park right away as soon as they opened up. And so I went in for the first shift and just being away from people for so long made you so paranoid that first night back on the floor. And I think we had like 220 people coming in our first night. And it was just terrifying for me. And like my wife has asthma. And so we just wanted to be more careful. So after that first shift, you know, it was great having money again, you know, the stimulus help and everything like that. But I reached out to my day job and was just like, hey, once like my uh, unemployment is up, like, would you guys let me come full time? And so, cause like, I just, I didn't want to work at a place that just was doing that covers. And like, I I get Hyde Park, like you need to make your money. If you're bringing all this product then you got to have people come in and you do what you got to do. And so I think I worked one more shift at Hyde Park and that was it. And then I never went back. And then I went full-time at the Columbus club, like two months after because I think I had a couple more weeks of unemployment that I was just collecting and just kind of enjoying life a little bit
0: when you join them full-time are you still doing the same stuff or as a wine manager like what are your kind of day-to-day that you're doing
1: so I didn't start off as a wine manager I don't know if- I could ever say I really had that term, but it was just pretty much working as a full-time server there. You know, they needed people, they needed good people. And like, I really knew what I was doing. I mean, I was good with the members, um, became very familiar with a couple of them. And some of them I actually see at the, the refectory. And uh, one of them is actually like probably my, my best clients for retail wine now. Cause like he's interested in uh, all new types of wine and has the money for first growth Bordeaux's and things like that. And I'm just like, all right, this is great. Made a really good first impression on my boss. Um, so I owe him a nice little um, thank you for that. My day-to-day job there really didn't change too much off the bat. Unfortunately, their bartender passed away when I was there, which was really sad. And it was a surprise to everyone. It was really hard because he's been there for so long. He was the pillar of um, that restaurant of the club, and so eventually I just started helping out behind the bar and you know working for the manager there and just giving my input. You know, he had the final say, and you know, it was his club. You he, know, he's the guy putting in 100 120 hours a week there. I'm not arguing with him. They had a, a big expanse renovation that they were doing at the time, too, and so there was going to be another bar. It was plans for me to help run that part of the bar, if not kind of be like a little floor som over there. They don't necessarily have the, I don't say the quantity of business for that, but it's just like the members would want that. Like it'd be a nice little luxurious thing for them to have. Um, And so that was kind of what the plan was for me to do. And then I got the job with the refector, which I didn't even apply for. It was just kind of an email I got from Chris Dillman.
0: How does that all happen? You just get emailed out of the blue? Like, do you ever find out how he found out about you or, or knew what you were doing? I've
1: never been so star-shocked or just like my gut wrenching once I read that email. But I was previously a couple months before, I was always trying to work for Greg um, down at Veritas. Like, you know, I really was looking for mentorship. And like, I know he had a retail shop. And I was like, hey, maybe I could help run with the retail. But then he had someone else in mind. and I was like, I totally get that. I'm still quite new at this. And that's why I'm looking to help. Um, And Veritas is a pretty small restaurant, you know, super high end, they do things great, but it's quite small and intimate. And I think that's what they they want. But I think it was, he was talking to Dillman and just said that there's this guy that was looking to work for me. I know he's interested in the wine job because like Dillman, I think left really quite shockingly i don't think anyone was ready for him to leave there and so everyone was kind of scrambling and so i was actually in colorado getting my ass beat up by a mountain for my friend's bachelor party and like i went there on like 2 hours of sleep and we climbed like a 12,000 foot peak and i know they would get mad at me if i didn't say i didn't get all the way the peak i was the only one i was too exhausted like i stopped before they kept going i was just waiting for them and rolled down the whole way back to the car. But on the way back from that car, we went to our cabin. I was looking at my phone once we hit reception again. And I saw an email and I was like, Chris, Dillman, that name sounds so familiar. And like, I just going through and he's like, hey, would you be interested in running this program? We do 40 wines by the glass, like, you know, have like 800 selections. And I'm just like, you know, if you want, just let me know. I was like, what? Like, this is crazy. Like, this is like a dream job. Because like, I was still pretty devastated. Couldn't go to New York, but like, Honestly, like if you're going to work at any restaurant and be a floor you know, the refectory is pretty much the place to do it in central Ohio. And like, it was unreal. I was like showing everybody in the cab. I was like, look at this, look at this, like this is crazy. And starting looking at the wine list and I was like blown away. I, I never looked at the refectory's wine list before. And that wine list was like the most intimidating thing I've ever seen in my life. But yeah, it was a surreal moment when I got that email and I instantly jumped right on it and talked to Dillman and then met with Kamal, the owner. And lucky enough, he believed in me at the time and was able to get the job.
0: What's the interview process like? You know, Obviously, they reach out to you, so they're interested in bringing you on. So there is this mutual interest, but is the interview process just Chatting with them, or is there like some sort of tasting involved just to see, or or they're just trying to quiz you on wine, or like what? No, the the people would think the refectory is all fancy
1: and everything in that way. No, it's not. It's just, I mean, it was probably the simplest interview I ever had. Um, especially with Dillman, like you know, he we met at I think like a little Korean restaurant off of this in the strip mall Bethel, and it wasn't even an interview, it was just him telling me everything about the job. Like, I think he just wanted to find somebody to help fill his shoes so he didn't feel as bad leaving. And then he connected me with Kamal and Kamal reached out instantly. Cause like, I, I think he was, he really wanted somebody to take over that. Cause like he did not want to touch wine. Like, and now starting there, Kamal does not want to deal with anything in the wine world anymore. So it's like strictly me, which is great. And then I met with Kamal, I think two days after Chris. So it was like three days and talked to both of them and it was a good interview. You know, I, I think Kamal was always about wholesome qualities and just, you know, respect and trying to get better um, and providing an experience to guests and bettering ourselves. And that's really all I was about, which is like, you know, I want to get better. And this program is like the best way I feel like I could do it. Um, And he was like, this is going to be the hardest job you've ever had. And I was like, yeah, I'm up for it. Let's do it. Then I went down to Florida with my family and he called and let me know that the job was mine. And it was awesome.
0: Like surreal. So what is it about the refractory that gets some of these labels? Like you mentioned, you know, it's going to be the hardest job that you've had. Is it the clientele? Is it the level of service? Is it just the wine list and just how big it is and how much knowledge that you need to have? It's
1: everything, everything. So first off, like as soon as you walk in the refractory, you just look up in the little foyer right there and you have all these diamond awards. You have all these grand awards of wine spectator, and that's quite intimidating the thing with the refectory it's been around for so long you have these people that have been there so many times like i would argue to say they have the best regular clientele in the city maybe lindy's could give them give us a run for their money being so established in a German village but i mean the refectory i mean the people there are unbelievable how amazing they are and how much they know chris dillman taught all of our regulars so much that like they could put me on the spot any single one of them could like bring something up to me and that's like when we host wine dinners and virtual wine tastings, it's so intimidating because like everyone knows so much. It's not just there to drink wine. They want to learn. They want the full experience and know all the nerdy details. And I think that was really kind of the thing that was just like, once I started talking to tables, it was just like, whoa, people really know their stuff here. I can't BS everyone like I could at Hyde Park. The refectory has so many different pipelines for income due to wine. Um, you know, we have virtual wine tastings, which is a pain to do, but it's awesome. We have in-house wine dinners. We have our retail sales, wine features, our in-house, you know, I'm a certified like on the floor SOM, like so we're doing tasting menus and custom tasting menus and all of this stuff while still maintaining seven, 800 bottles on the list. There's so many different facets that gave me trouble for the first couple months to say the least.
0: The wine shop? Do you have anything really to deal with over there, or is that just kind of an extension of the wine program? Or
1: I run the entire beverage program at their factory now. So I uh, do the bar, the retail shop, uh, the wine program, um, which can be overbearing at points. I don't deal too much with the creative side of the bar program. You know, we have some really passionate people that are all about cocktails and that's great. Cause I'm not, um, I'm all about drinking wine. And so I kind of let them make up the things and just like, all right, well, this is kind of where we need to fit in the budget. And just like, we'll move through these products and try to drink out and kind of just the overall management. Well, I do very little on the creative side because, you know, our alcohol program's not too big. I think, you know, it's probably 20%, 15% in comparison to the wine program that we do there. But, you know, it's something that everyone wants and we want to make sure we have good cocktails and fun drinks for people to have when they
0: come in. With the wine list, the wine cellar, how much can you kind of play around with it? You know, you have Chris Dillman who was there forever, everybody, and back now. So how much are you dealing with like, well, this isn't something Chris would have had on the list or, you know what I mean? That aspect of it. I mean, I have full
1: reign. It's really whatever I'm feeling I get to do. So it's, I feel like I'm living a Somalia's dream because um, I don't necessarily have a budget. If I buy a lot of wine, guess what? I have to sell a lot of wine. And so, you know, I just kind of take the restaurant in the direction that I think it should. The list, it's huge and Bordeaux, Napa, late vintages, French and champagne um, has been a big um, aspect of it. Um, and so it's just kind of trial and error. Um, and now I'm at to the point where just you have so many routes to sell wine that, pretty much anything I can bring in, I'm easily able to move, especially with the tasty menu. That's huge for us to move products through that. Like, you know, one and a half weeks, I think I was able to sell an entire case of 24 year old Lebanese wine, you know, from Chateau Moussard. That's definitely not a thing that you can do really at um, any restaurant. And it's just like, it's fun to be able to do that. My biggest... I want to say mistake time where I, I kind of test myself. I did not want to mess up our program. And I wanted to make sure that we were stocked because everyone was talking about like champagne Armageddon, where you're going to lose all the champagne. We can. Yeah. And it's like, are you kidding me? I can get champagne anytime. This is ridiculous. Like, all right, stop this nonsense. We can get it. And so I overbought champagne like crazy in the holidays. You know, one of my favorite importers, um, distributors is Skernick. And, you know, what they're known for is grower producer champagne. So everything that goes in there, they own the vines. They tend to it, it, you know, makes it so much more unique and so much better. And so they did this huge direct import order when I first started. And I was just like overwhelmed. Those 80 page list of all their different producers and just all the different wines that we could potentially order. And I think I put like a, it was like a $7,000 order in. And when that came, like, I was just like, oh my God, this is so much champagne. And we didn't sell like any of it during the holidays or New Year's Eve. And I was just like, what am, I, what am I doing with all this stuff now? And then like, I was able to figure out kind of how to maneuver that and like actually start pushing. And now like we've gone through most of it and like we still have the good stuff that I want to keep, but I've figured out kind of how to move through products when it didn't move as fast as I wanted it to.
0: Because you have this great buying and sourcing power? Is it more of a challenge of trying to figure out like, yeah, I could bring any of this stuff in, but who realistically is going to want this? Who's somebody who would be interested in this? Like besides myself, obviously.
1: I feel like now that I have, I know a lot of the clients that we have, it's, Pretty easy for me to kind of like know, like, okay, I'm going to go through this. You know, I have one guy that will always buy older Napa cabs or one guy that will always buy Rieslings. And so, like, I can just like, I'll play around with it, maybe bring one of these wines on the tasting menu for a while, try it out. And then everything else I could probably pawn off via retail. The more people that, you know, I've interacted with and kind of have connections to buying retail wine on a normal, basis, I feel like is definitely better for us. You know, it's just able to just do these obscure things. I and mean, it just kind of covers uh, my ass too.
0: Is there anything that you did bring in that like didn't go anywhere and you're just like, shit. I mean, the champagne
1: was one of the big ones. I got some big bottles. got some like three liters of wine. Those are sitting around, but I've slowly started to figure out how to work those. Like for Valentine's weekend, where we have like five, 600 people to come in, we're able to have fun with that. Like uh, I think this Valentine's weekend, we were open for Saturday, Sunday, Monday. So we had three days, same menu, same tasting menu. And so for the third course, we had the third course upgrade. And I was just like, all right, what is this third course upgrade going to be? And I was just like, downstairs, we had a, a 1991 uh, five liter of Chateau Montalena. And it's, it was a very expensive bottle. And I was just like, all right, I'd like to get this off the inventory. Let's see what we can do. And it took me about two hours to open up the bottle. And, but we were able to filter into some bottles and we went through the entire thing of the three days, which was awesome. And the wine was killer, by the way, I have some really weird, uh, orange wine from Northern Italy that I'm still sitting on like two bottles of
0: that was supposed to be the next thing. Like the next big thing was supposed to be orange wine. I thought,
1: yeah, it's kind of there, I feel like, but like, it's not, it won't overtake anything else. I think it's probably seen its height already. There's some out there that's good. It's interesting. Um, And usually like the biggest thing is there's a lot of this, you know, the natural wine and all these other really fun wines to drink. But the important thing is, especially at the refectory is, even though I think the wine program is like the most special thing about it, it's not, it's the food. Chef Richard is unbelievable mastermind behind in the kitchen. And so my job is just really not to overshadow that and I feel like some of these funky wines out there and some orange wines can really overpower dishes. And so that's always kind of a balancing thing that you have to do is just to make sure that I don't want to ruin somebody's palate where they can't enjoy the food by just giving them such a profound wine that has a maybe unlikable quality to it that will go with a dish.
0: With kind of the pairings, you know, they do a tasting menu there. How challenging is it to find something that works with classic French food Are there any challenges with pairing or is that fairly easy because it is, you know what to expect flavor wise. So you can kind of play around with a little bit more like, oh, well, let me try this. Like this is kind of obscure, but maybe this will work. Yeah.
1: So now there's no problem. Uh, When I first started the first four months, oh my God, I was in trouble. I was terrified. Also, when I first started, I only had one day of training with Chris and it was a busy Saturday night. Everybody was pretty much there to say goodbye to him. You know, it was one of his last weekends and it was like horrendous. We were running around like crazy. I was not learning anything. And at the end of the shift, we're both sweating at the service side station, just trying to drink water. And it was like, well, here are the keys. Um, do you got any questions? It was like, no, I'm good. And then went and got married. And then when I came back uh, my first day on, that was like, you know, I did days of cleaning in the cellar and everything like that. But the first day on the floor on the Wednesday, I was expecting to be in the kitchen for a week. You know, I was just like, I want to get, you know, good understanding of the food, taste the sauces and seeing this pair and everything. And then uh, I talked to the owner. I was like, okay, right, so you're just going to plan to be in the kitchen. He's like, oh, no, you can be on the floor. You can just go out and get it. It was like, you sure? <laughs> you don't want me to like uh, just, you know, a day. He's he like, no, you got it. I was like, Okay. And so my first day unexpectedly was on the floor. And so I was getting our little bar cart and everything ready. I put all of our Corvin or Sommelier selection wines on our bar cart. Because I remember Chris telling me that I was like, we only do pairings on like Friday or Saturday. And that wasn't true. We did pairings every day, but I didn't know it at the time. And so I was not prepared for any of the wines in the pairing menu because I thought I had two more days and I was trying to... Catch up on everything. So, like the first day was a frantic mess. And so, I was probably just mumbling um, at tables and just saying, This wine's great. It's red. It's from France. And you're going to get some berries and nice tannin. Right off the bat, it was really hard doing pairings because I just didn't have a basis of the dishes, uh, didn't have a basis of all the wines I had at my disposal. And the worst was when we get custom pairings. That was like doomsday for me. I was just like so overwhelmed even with the abbreviations of the dishes, I'd have to go to the menu and just like figure out like everything in this dish. And it's like, oh my gosh, and just put it all together. Now I love doing custom pairings because it lets me get through some wine that I have opened and I can just go into other routes and just have a lot of fun with it. Yeah. It's easier now, a lot harder a couple months ago.
0: What is a custom pairing? Is that like sommelier choice kind of deal? Yes. Yeah,
1: so our restaurant you can do a full a la carte menu. You can order whatever you want. Or we have our tasting menu, which is five courses. And you can do a regular tasting menu, which you get pretty much everything, seafood, meat, Um, or you can do a vegetarian. And those all have their preset pairings. Um, And now we also have two levels of pairings. So we have the standard and we have the grand crew. I think standard is generally 70, 75 grand crews, 150 to 160, which is pretty substantial. You know, some of our servers, you know, our menu can be overwhelming onto a lot of people because there's just so many things you just haven't seen on there and the preparations, and just kind of the format. So servers will sometimes put together a full five course menu for people that's ordered a la carte. That's not our actual tasting menu. And then they'll want wine pairings of that. And so then the server will pretty much just write down what course, what seat they're having, if they want like a half glass or full glass. And then I kind of just create a custom pairing on that. And then I usually go talk to them beforehand too, to see if there's any wines that they don't like. If they're up to being adventurous, because I always love when they're adventurous, because then I, I get to have everything out of my full arsenal, and then kind of where they want to be at price point. You know, I have people that come in and they want to spend $45 for a pairing. We can do that for you. Or I have people that come in and they're totally fine with spending $200 for a pairing. I will happily do that for you.
0: Every sommelier seems to have like a region or a style of wine. That's their favorite, that they just kind of gravitate towards. So what is it for you? Is it France? Is it Bordeaux? What's kind of your region and and the wines that you really like enjoy, and, and that's kind of what got you into being a sommelier?
1: I think originally it was like Napa Cabs, and those have lost a lot of luster for me. And now it's moved more towards French wines. I love Nador, a lot of French wines. I mean, they're delicious. They, a lot of times are a really good bargain. Um, like we're doing a virtual wine tasting coming up. That's going to be um, Bordeaux versus Napa. I think all but one of the Bordeaux wines are cheaper than Napa. And I think they're actually a little bit better too. So I think just, there's just so much value in there. And just most people don't know a lot of the stuff. Um, there's a lot of um, obscure items out there that just don't hit the retail market spaces. I adore small production, weird wines that no one's ever heard of. And I'd say probably my uh, biggest go-to right now is sweet wine. Uh, Because when I first started, I I never worked with sweet wine. And going back to pairings, that was the hardest thing off the bat for pairing-wise was desserts. Because one, the desserts were all very different in flavor profile and richness and sweetness. And then dessert wines, I just... Didn't know too much about them. I knew there was port. I knew there was maybe a a sweet sherry. And there was, you know, a thing called Madeira, which Chris Dillman loved and brought in an obscure selection of Madeiras. Like we have, you know, Madeiras from the 1800s and all this fun stuff now, which I love. And we're about to restock up on some of that stuff. But that was where I kind of have fun now. And because I think that's always a great way to wow people at the very end, you know, I and my biggest go-to, and we have to be the biggest purchaser of this in the country is um, Domaine de Rancy, which is this lovely little Rivesol Ombre. Um, Rivesol is a village in the southern part of France. Ombre is a rare form of this wine and it hits everybody. Everyone loves it. Like I, I've sold so many of that bottles of these wines to go because they just are overwhelmed by a sweet wine. They've never even knew how it, could taste like this. And it's usually I, I describe it as like a whiskey wine. And that's how it gets everyone right there. Especially the gentlemen. I say, you like whiskey? Yeah. Do you want a little whiskey wine? And they're like, oh my gosh, yes. So I'd say that's kind of always been my little secret weapon ever since I've been to the refectory.
0: Is there a region that you like you're excited to kind of explore that maybe you haven't paid too much attention to? Like when you get back into doing stuff with the certified and whatnot?
1: Uh Riesling, Germany, those high acidic wines, um, those are something I'm trying to get into more. We're going to be hosting like a Constantine uh, Richter, who's a uh, winemaker coming from um, Germany and next month. And I'm super excited for that. That's a good thing about the job too, is that I have full leeway is it was after the holidays. We had, um, you know, Rosé Champagne was the first course pairing for probably two and a half months because it was so good. Everyone liked it. And there was like a special um, discount on it if you did it by the glass. And so we were making good money off of it. And I was just like, okay, it's after the holidays, let's try to try something different. And then I started putting a couple different Rieslings on the tasting menu. And not because I thought everyone would love them, it was kind of, I wanted to try them. And I was like, okay, I'll buy six bottles of this and try this out. And then six bottles of this and try it out. And people love them. It's crazy. We've had a $35 glass of Riesling on our list and it sells. Like I would never expect for people to want like a super sweet Riesling and pay top dollar for it. It's surprising to me. That's an area that I I definitely want to dwell into a little bit more.
0: Natural wine. Are you for, against? hundred percent against
1: the fad. Like natural wine's a thing. Like people don't understand that like, you know, European countries have been doing that pretty much already for decades and they just don't market it and brand it as this new thing, this great thing. It's like, they've been doing this for so long. And like, I also feel like... This is probably not totally true, but like they're just skipping steps on making wine. It's easier to do. And half the time it produces a wine that, in my opinion, that's faulted, where it just doesn't have the exact flavor profile. Should like, I'm fine if you have to add sulfites and other products to a wine for it to taste better and have a better longevity. That's great for my means. But like, you know, I support 100% organic, um, biodiversity, biodynamics in the winery, co planting all of that stuff, you know, that's great. But, you know, I'll always try something, but the refectory doesn't really have meat really need for any of those products. Um, And that kind of goes back to the thing where I just don't want to ruin anyone's palate for their food. Um, And I I think some of those wines, you know, when you have those Flintstone gummy bare vitamin flavor profile that just like grits your mouth, like I, I don't want to give you that experience at the table when you're about to get your duck leg confit Like, that's just not really, (laughs) I think, the best route to go with.
0: Columbus is still, you know, a beer town. Napa Cab, also very big, as you've said, getting into wine. Do you think there's been any change in the city's drinking habits or will be? Seltzer kind of came and went. Some natural wine places. The Dry Mill just opened uh, recently, too. I feel like there's small little sub pockets of, like, it's still a craft beer town.
1: Yeah. I mean, our list is pretty much all kind of craft and smaller producers for our beer. Um, That's actually something that I want to work over this summer is changing it up because we haven't changed it up since um, our last bartender was in. I've kind of wanted to venture into that a little bit more, um, but it's just been such a low priority for me. Like our beer is like 1% of the sales of like just our beverage. So it's just like, I don't move through stuff. Like, you know, I got really excited when we brought some stuff in from Pretentious um, You know, I love sour beers. I think those are great, and their wines like they're aged in Chardonnay barrels, like awesome. That's great. And you know, I thought we moved through a little quicker, and it's just like I think I bought two cases of it like two three months ago, and like we still have like a case left. We just don't move through that stuff and in terms of like wine trends that I've started to see. I'm actually surprised that we don't sell more like Camus and Silver Oak, all that kind of wine, which is great. I'm I'm totally for that. I still say it's pretty Napa centric, but the great thing about, you know, the factory, it's a French restaurant. And like people, like, I feel like already coming there, they're challenging themselves to try something different. And especially if a sommelier there, they, you know, they do like to ask like, okay, you know, we don't normally try French wine, but like we're at a French restaurant, let's try something different. And, you know, that's always really, that's like my favorite words to hear. It's just like, yeah, perfect. We're going to be able to get you into something different. And like, you know, I say Chateauneuf de Pop and Southern Rhone wines; those are huge right now. People love uh, Southern Rhone wines. I've been having trouble like stocking some Chateauneuf de Pops because they just they go like crazy. Um, I'd say that's kind of maybe a trend where people are going a little bit more. But I just think the refectory is already such people are just willing to change and try different things when they come there.
0: Are you able to enjoy dinner? out like if you go somewhere that has a wine list are you compulsively checking the beverage list to see what they have and price points yeah 100 percent. it's a disease
1: i feel bad when i go out with my wife it's like all right five minutes give me five minutes drink your drink i gotta do my quick little look and everything like that i am still like always intrigued to see what people are selling products for and what type of wines they have but i've gotten better at it now that I don't do it too much. I've checked my OCD. You know, I, I do like going out and seeing what other products people have and just always trying something a little bit new. But most of the times, like, especially I feel like a lot of the places in Cameron Mitchell's, like I've seen all these wines before, you know, it's always going to be pretty much the same thing. Unfortunately for the staff of the refectory, they have to deal with me. And like, I constantly change wines by the glass because like, I can't pick, I like love everything too much. I like, I love this this week. And then I love this so much more next week. And we just got to change stuff so much. Like the tasting menu changes a lot now just because like, I want people to experience all these different types of wines. I've gotten a little better on that. I I promised to the staff, I was like, I'm going to try my best, but I'm breaking that promise a lot.
0: Since you've been involved, how has the food and restaurant industry in Columbus kind of changed and where do you see it headed? What do you think still needs to change about it?
1: So I was pretty, I feel like naive. I just, my eyes weren't open when I first started. I think it's moving in a lot of really good directions right now, um, especially with things that are happening downtown. Um, I think a lot of people are getting excited about Intel. And, you know, seeing that huge growth spurt that's going to come, um, you know, I know there is some development down, you know, where like Veritas is and there's going to be this whole new kind of like uh, French sector of downtown uh, Columbus. And, you know, that'd be exciting to see where that goes. But, you know, I think everything's still kind of going quite slow. But I, I think we have a really good wine community in the city. And I, I think that Columbus is, you know, especially talking to people in like Cincinnati and Cleveland, you know, Columbus is... The market is killing it right now we're seeing a lot of good trends um going in here
0: what's next for you professionally obviously you know you're at the refectory you have this great beverage director job down the road i know you mentioned you were gonna do the certified but future kind of dreams endeavors anything
1: yeah i'm torn um there's so many things I still want to do. Like one, I don't want to leave the refectory for a while. Like, cause I'm just having so much fun that the program is like fully mine now. Like where I know, I mean, 95% of the bottles on the list and I know where they are more importantly, um, but just the comfort of all of that. So, you know, I, I'm very happy where I am for now, you know, going forward, more short term, like I, me and my wife are still always kind of nibbling at the idea of moving to a large city. You know, New York was a dream for us and we were crushed when that couldn't happen. Um, And just to be able to be in those markets to sell, um, which is be awesome. Like uh, we had the guy that actually took over the wine program in the refectory, um, Jerry Krause. He took over, I think, after Jeff Elasky passed away, um, which was uh, six, seven years ago, something like that. And he came back in town and he kind of did what like we wanted to do. He went to, I think it was, yeah, San Francisco, worked at like a three-star Michelin. He worked under a, a master SOM. He was selling, you know, cases of DRC, and all this like crazy wine that I just like, I'd be happy if I sold one bottle of that here for like five years. And so just to experience that a little bit would be great. I've always thought about Napa, but then just went out there five weeks ago and Prices are just too crazy. So we cannot go live out there. But I'd say now, more long term, Cleveland's going to be the destination for us. You know, my wife's family is all up in Cleveland. Um, When we want to start a family, um, we'll probably really consider moving up that way. And I've always wanted to live next to the the lake again, want to get a little boat and have fun professionally when out there. I don't really want to leave front of house necessarily. So I don't know if distribution's my game. So maybe like a corporate beverage job uh, to start off until I get funds. And, you know, the end goal is 100% going to be my own little wine store. I want to have a brick and mortar wine store. Even if we can live up on top of it, that'd be great. Nothing crazy, just something that would be mine. I get to sell the wines that I want to sell. And so, you know, I've always kind of thought about that idea, maybe trying to buy an existing wine shop up there. You know, there's one called uh, Rossi's that I've always was like, hey, you know, maybe by the time I'm going up there, they might want to sell or something to have a good foundation to build upon, especially going to a new market where I don't know anyone. That 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 would be the biggest challenge.
0: This next question comes from Jack Moore, former chef at Watershed Black Cap Hot Sauce. He was a previous guest on the podcast, Left Behind. Question for you if you could choose any other career to be in. To reset, do it all over again, what would it be?
1: I feel like I should say finance, right? With how much money they make. I feel like I would have maybe stick with what I wanted to do in the first place, be a marina manager and working with boats. I feel like I grew up on the water and my dad was a a marina manager. He was the third ever certified marina manager in the world and pretty much kind of wrote the foundations for the programs. And like I just, you know, always envied what his job was and to be on the water and to work with like super yachts, like going down to like Ford and seeing these 200 foot boats is just like, wow, this is crazy. It's like me now looking at a bottle of like a Screaming Eagle. It's like, whoa, it's like, that's a gem right there or something like that. So probably do something like
0: that. With a marina manager, what all does that entail? So I'm assuming it's, it's always going to be kind of private boats, a lot of big boats, yachts, stuff like that. But you're essentially running the entire like high-end marina essentially, right?
1: Yeah, the the one in Sandusky wasn't high end. But yeah, down in Florida or something like that. Yeah. So, you know, just having all those amenities, probably having like a restaurant or, you know, a nice bar on the property. And I'd say that was probably like my first ever hospitality job because like I was dealing with boaters and dockers, you know, up in uh Sandusky. My dad actually he ran three different properties. He ran, you know, a 600 slip marina that had a, a huge uh gas fueling dock, and then there was two uh, additional um yard facilities where they would do, um, repairs and then storage, um, out, out of water storage, um, during the off season. Um, and that's, that's where I first started was working in there. Um, I was, uh, zamboning the the floors after all the boats went out of the warehouse and just going in there and just doing all the yard work and all the grunt work, which was, it was pretty fun, and satisfying. It was fun being, you know, his kid because like we also got free dockage and like we had the best slip and it was always kind of cool to go after work and they're just like, I'll go hang out on the boat or something like that.
0: What question do you want to leave behind for the next
1: guest? If it was wine related, if there was any one wine region in the world that you would not ever want to see change with global warming or any change ever, I guess that doesn't work for a chef. If there's any one food item that you'd have to eat and pair with
0: for the rest of your life, what would it be? This question comes from one of our listeners. Where do you think the wine industry as a whole will be at the end of the decade by 2030?
1: I would like to say it's at a point where it's cheaper than what it is now, but I know that's not going to be true. I think over these next couple of years, I think wines are reaching like a really top price point; like they're out of control, um, especially over you know the last five, six months now that Chris Dillman's been back at the refectory. You know, he's been telling me about like when he was back at the burgundy room, He was like, oh my gosh, we were buying this bottle for like $12. And now I'm buying it for like 80. I think maybe in some way correcting itself. I would like to say that like Cabernet probably won't be as dominant as it is as well right now. Cause I mean, it's dominant everywhere you look. I mean, in Spain, it's, pretty it's, it's a lot of different places where you don't expect it to see it uh france you know it's still good um and california washington assume that you maybe you'll start seeing some other varieties really starting to come up with the spotlight and that's where these new generations of wine drinkers are going to probably maybe not growing up drinking you know just these classic wines that you see uh, nowadays and that, that i was starting my early days drinking
0: especially like napa Maybe it's going on in other regions, but there's definitely a consolidation effort. Like you see, these big Gallo and Duckhorn just did it again. Like they're buying up like just a shit ton of vineyards when they get, or other wine labels and stuff like that. Is that going to still continue or at some point that's kind of got to trail off, right? Like you can only have so many competing wines within your own portfolio. Like if you look at the champagne houses, what the Louis Vuitton, like they would constantly have, and you're like, they'd have like four or five different like high end. And you're just like, you're just competing against each other in a way. And then they'd sell one off or something like that. Like, will it be kind of similar to that? I don't know. Maybe.
1: I think that's got to stop at some point, like you can get to hundred percent, but then after that, you know, you can't own anything else. I mean, it's kind of a shame to see a lot of the stuff get bought up. I would like to say that, you know, they keep the people on, you know, the families on that they bought it from to continue the tradition of the winery, but now it's just owned by, you know, a huge corporation. Um, But a lot of times I feel like that doesn't happen. And if it does, it only happens for a couple of years. And they're like, okay, wait, we need to worry about the profits a little bit more than what you're worrying about. And kind of, all right, sorry, this is your two or three years are up and we're bringing somebody else in. I think there's got to be a corruption course over the next decade. Definitely seems like it's getting out of control. Even over the last couple years where I've gotten more into wine, it's just like left and right, everybody's getting bought up. And I don't want to say it makes bad wine, but it just makes a lot more of monotonous wine, which for me, that's like the worst thing ever. Like I want my wines to be different. I, I want to be able to get the taste and profile of all the wines.
0: Last set of questions here. As these to all the Psalms that come on the podcast. So nice compare contrast across the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your wine career thus far? Honestly,
1: locally, it's Gregory Stokes and Chris Dillman. Gregory Stokes was, for me, just starting off the bat competing against. He ran a huge program, you know, Veritas. And it's just like my wine reps, if they knew how to work me, they would just say, oh, Greg just brought this in. Okay. I want it. Give me, bring me a case of it. That's going to be it. But now it's moved away. And I definitely say Chris is a little bit more on that. He's my Wikipedia of wine. When we're just hanging out at the bar, he's doing his thing. I'm doing mine. I'll just ask him questions and He'll go off on these tangents and stories of things I've never even heard. I mean, most of my wine journey has been pretty solo, which I'm happy with because I've always been kind of a lone wolf. But now that I'm getting more into the community and in-depth friendships with people, I'm um, starting to get that more of that influence. Um, so what I'd say right now, probably Chris's bigger influence I've had. And I don't know if that's a good or bad thing because he's definitely a, uh, stuck in his ways.
0: What is your desert island wine?
1: Agliore Grand Cru Champagne. I can't get enough of that stuff. That stuff is delicious. Probably not the most crazy Desert Island wine, but dear Lord, it's so good. I've never heard of Agliore before I started the refectory. I saw we had this and I was able to taste a bottle of it once before we ran out and just fell in love. I mean, champagne is my my go-to, but Agliore for me is the best of the best.
0: Restaurant that you'd recommend that isn't your own, so it can't be the refectory.
1: Probably a little bit more of a common answer, but Martini. I freaking love Martini. I'm just once again, we lived on the same block as there, so me and my wife went there for happy hour all the time. And their arancini, the fresh mozzarella, like I mean, the stuff never changes, but it's so good. And oh, okay, I'm sorry, how did I forget the butternut squash tortellini? This is like the best dish I've ever had in my life. It's so good, and it's really good because uh, when me and my wife first started dating, she was a vegetarian. Didn't eat seafood, didn't eat chicken, but I have corrected that path and she now eats chicken and turkey. So we are able to venture out other places, but martinis, butternut squash um, was always our go-to.
0: Bucketless travel destination, bucketless restaurant. So a place you haven't been to that you want to visit and then a restaurant that you haven't been to, but you want to eat at. Place I want to travel
1: to, Paris, France, Burgundy. Those are the big places I really want to travel to. Hopefully going to be doing a Europe trip next year place that i want to eat at just because of the all of it um was a daniel blod's uh la pavilion which is in new york city it's like a new restaurant that they that opened up and i don't know if it was just all over i think i started following daniel Boulud on uh instagram when he first opened up that restaurant and it was like all pictures of it and it was like for me it looked like the most breathtaking restaurant in the world i imagine the food probably is going to be behind there i'm sure there's better places but like if I could go anywhere, I think that would probably
0: be it. Yeah, I think he's gonna be opening like another restaurant out in like LA or something. There's no like formality on it's like it's an idea and somebody said, Yeah, sure. And then like it's in the works kind of thing. And then I would say to that point, probably at the end of the decade, then you're gonna
1: start seeing Daniel Bilal's you know, like a drive-through in your local city or something like that. Like we go what the Columbus Airport has a Wolfgang Puck restaurant or something in it. I've never seen it open. It's always been closed every time I've gone by it.
0: I don't know if it's open anymore. Like every time I've been through there since COVID, it's been closed. But that entire airport is basically closed at like two or three o'clock in the afternoon. It's so wild. I kind of despise that airport. Like none of the terminals are connected you can get through security fast, which is like the only cool thing, but it takes forever to get the shuttle to the parking lot. If you check a bag, it takes at least like 15 minutes before they unload. Like it's the only benefit is that like you can get through security in like 10 minutes.
1: All right. Well, that makes me feel better. Cause like we always fly at an obscure times so it's super early or super late and nothing's ever open. So that, make, that makes me feel better, but it's good that they're, they're redoing the airport. I mean, I know it's gonna be like a decade or anything, but
0: Craziest thing you've seen
1: happen in a restaurant while you're working? I've seen two people cry because the wine was so good. I had uh, one gentleman who was from Hungary and his uh, family owned um, a wine estate there and they had to leave Hungary for some reasons. And once his father passed away, he wanted to purchase the property, but like it was just a ridiculous amount of money that the government wanted him to pay for it. And so he's just always has this connection and he's never had Takaya Sancia, which is like one of the sweetest wines in the world it used to be like a wine for Kings and Queens. And we actually serve it into this little crystal spoon and I served it to the guy. And I'm sure there were so many emotional things and just the wine was so freaking good. He, he cried, um, drinking that. I had another lady that she did custom wine pairing. And at the end I gave her this old, like, It was like a 1790 Solera of a sherry. I think it was like Osborne VS Oloroso Sabrita, which is one of their ancient, like four Soleras of the sherry. And like, she was just like in love with it. She was like, I've never tasted anything like this. Like you made me cry. Like I didn't know that I could have that emotion. Making somebody cry with wine is like, wow, that's uh, that's an experience right there. I've seen some crazy things, but I'd say that's the one that just always has stuck with me a little bit more.
0: Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything that you know is terrible for you, fast food, candy, whatever, but just can't help?
1: McDonald's fries and just a plain cheeseburger. I am a simple guy. Like when I was working at a marina, like I would go wash the owner's boat and there was a McDonald's that was like a five minute bike right away. And I would go and I would get like three cheeseburgers, a large fry because my parents weren't there and they couldn't see anything. And I would just eat it and it was like, oh, this is awesome. I don't really have a guilty pleasure drink. I list like a light beer or a good Italian beer, like a Peroni and Negroni.
0: Wine recommendation time. So four categories, $20 and under, $50 and under, $100 and under, and then over 100 no limit. Under 20 Just came across this like a couple months ago, um, Evolutio
1: Ferment. So it's another wine from Hungary. It's a dry um, style of ferment. And it is so good. Um, beautiful, ripe fruits, um, a sharp acidity, mouth watering. really nice. I think it's like 14 bucks. Evolution ferment under 50. There's this really good wine. We're the only place in the state that has it. Cause it was brought just for us. Oliver Gras Pratsura. Um, it's coming um, from Vaqueras, which is in uh, Southern uh, France and Rhone Valley. It's uh, kind of like Chateauneuf de Pops' little brother. It's like an elevated plateau. Pratsera is like 50% Syrah, 50% Grenache. It's awesome. Big, bold, but delicate. That's like one of the biggest crowd pleasers. I think it's like $35 um, that wine over delivers. Now for a hundred, oh, there's so many different things out there. I'd say probably like a, a nice Spanish Rioja, maybe a Muga Prado Aneo, which are usually like Right now, I think around 2011 vintage, and it's like ninety dollars, and that wine is awesome. Definitely over delivers on it. I mean, sees a lot of oak, big balsamic appeals to a little bit of everybody that you want a little acidity, but then you also want a big wine. And then Rajard for any wine over a hundred which is like a mythical Cabernet Franc that comes from the Loire Valley. And so um, their factory was lucky enough. I think Chris was the first one that brought it in Um, during COVID shutdown. It's pretty much a wine that exclusively stays in France. The Michelin star restaurant, super small production. During shutdown, they needed other places to sell the wine. So it was one of the first times that it's hit the international market and Columbus was able to get some. And so we have some of that. And it was actually the one day I trained with Chris. He let me have some because one of his guests bought it and left him half the bottle, and he still had it. And it was the Clovisard, Summer Champagne, uh, Le Borg, and one of the most memorable wines I ever had. It was incredible. Like I, I thought I was drinking a twenty-year-old wine, but it was only like six years old, and it was just blew me away. And I think like the actual retail price of it is probably like three hundred, but like, you can't find it on like on the secondary market for probably like six, seven hundred dollars. Stupid how expensive it is.
0: Favorite Instagram account you follow? Death
1: & Co. Cocktails are always really cool. It's just the place me and my wife that I've always had a very close relationship to that. But every time we've gone to New York, we always go to Death & Co. Um, and I have like all their books. And I don't think I've ever made a cocktail from their books, but it's just like, I have it. And it just like, makes me feel like I'm in New York every time I see it. Uh, a post from them. Um, so I'd probably say them.
0: I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is. If you were moment episode scene that stands out to you about him the most if you weren't is there anybody who was on tv hospitality industry chef or anything that you kind of gravitated towards when you're getting started in your career
1: i actually started my career when i was a little kid in the man versus food i love that show that guy but now not really anyone too much i forget her name she was one of the master psalms that did my introductory exam in miami i can't believe i'm blanking on it but she runs like um a ton of beverage director um, in West Palm beach. There's like a really nice the breakers she's the beverage director of the breakers. She's a master Psalm. I mean, there's only like 30 master Psalms are women. So probably that
0: where can people find you social media website, plug everything. I'm on
1: uh, social media on pretty much only Instagram. I'm on Facebook, but I just go on Facebook to scroll and see where all my friends from high school are. And if it makes me feel better, it makes me feel worse. Uh Instagram's pretty much solely it. Um, and I think I'm t.o.wolf on Instagram. That's pretty much, I kind of had a purge of social media. I feel like over COVID and I was just like, okay, enough of all this. Like this is making me sick.
0: And you can follow the Refractory accounts too, as well. Uh, there's a couple of them. We'll post them. I don't remember them off the top of my head. It's like the Refractory Dining is the restaurant, but I'm pretty sure there's like a separate one for the bottle shop. That'd be news
1: to me. I didn't know that. Because there used to be an old uh, Sylvia. She came from Anderson. She ran the retail shop. So maybe she did that a while ago. But now I think it's strictly refectory dining. Every once in a while, I have a takeover on that count. Anytime you see wine, that's me. And it's usually the blurry images as
0: well. And you guys are open, what, like Tuesday through Saturday? Uh, Wednesday through Saturday.
1: Open uh, basically five to nine. And then we're open Mondays and Tuesdays for private events and dinner music series and wine tastings.
0: Well, I appreciate you coming on. I think we might see you this weekend. I We had a reservation. We had to change it, but I think it's a Saturday. We'll see you then. But yeah, I appreciate you coming on. I was like, it's always fun to just talk to the Psalms and like nerd out on wine and stuff. So sounds like it's a cool place. Awesome seller situation you got there. So stay in touch. If you ever need anything from us, let us know. We try and support everybody as much as we can. It comes on the podcast, but uh, I think we'll see you this weekend.
1: Awesome. I would say if you could ever help out, is I live in Westgate and it's like three blocks down is Roy's Avenue Supper Club. And I have never, I've tried to get in over there. And so if you ever have any in there, that that's where I would ever ask for help.
0: I'll see what I can do. Uh, they're tough. I mean, I got in, invited once and when, and it's a great time. It, it's kind of like an, in. I think one of the nights, I think it's like Mondays when they do it, is usually like, uh, it's just a lot of industry people or whatever. But when I talked with Andrew, Cause originally they, they did like a list through like Instagram, but then they, they just would get like hundreds of messages and he was like, this is the worst idea I ever had. Like, I don't know why I did this. So now, you know, they still have that list that they try and go through or whatever. There's no, don't bother messaging them or anything if you're hearing this, um, but, but they work through it and, and everything they are getting ready to do some more pop-up dinners. I know too, as well. And those are pretty much same vein too, as well, but it's always a new menu and everything too that they've done. He hasn't done one in a while uh, since like last fall. So that should be coming back because they were working on trying to find a space. But, but yeah, I'll put a word in uh, for you <laughs>
1: if I can. I'll, I'll do what I can. One of my wine reps lives like three blocks down and they actually bid on our house and we, we bought houses at the same time. And we were both like, isn't there a supper club that's like just like down the block in the neighborhood? And so we would both been trying to get in.
0: I'll see what I can do. No promises a big thanks again to taylor for coming on the podcast taking some time out of his day off to come on and chat about his career and, and wine funny story when taylor and i recorded this a couple weeks later we went to the refectory and that would actually kind of be our last dinner out um, because then our son was born three weeks early the day after so wasn't playing that way but just kind of a an ironic bookend to the last uh month or two um and kind of living in chaos so But a big thanks again to Taylor. You can follow him on Instagram at t.o.wolf. Also, you can follow the restaurant at Refectory Wine for kind of their wine shop. And then at Refectory Dining um, for the restaurant too as well. You can follow us on Instagram at Spoon Mob. Twitter and Facebook too, Spoon Mob 1. Check out the website, spoonmob.com. And then also make sure to subscribe, follow the podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, new episodes on Thursdays. Uh, we're releasing some other episodes during the week right now, just recapping, kind of updating for a few guests that have been on and open different concepts or moved to different restaurants and whatnot. So that's been a lot of fun to do too, as well. So more new episodes on the way on Thursdays though. Um, appreciate everybody listening, continue to help spread the word. If you're new, welcome. If you've been here for a while, thank you for your continued listening support. And uh, we will talk to you guys next week.